Hello, listeners. This is your host, Jay Rodenbush. Before we dive into today's episode, we would like to issue a quick warning. This episode has themes of physical and emotional abuse, stalking, and depictions of traumatic events. Listener discretion is advised. If these topics are triggering for you, please check out some of our other episodes. As always, we appreciate you tuning in to the Strength and Recovery Podcast. Now, please enjoy this new episode with St. Charles Alumni Coordinator Amber Denton as she shares her inspiring experience, strength, and hope. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Strength in Recovery podcast. We are here in beautiful St. Charles, Illinois, outside of Chicago. I'm sitting down with Amber Denton. She is our newest alumni coordinator, um, and she just has a great story. She is an alum of our Capital Region location, which is outside of Washington, D.C., and um, she's been a real instrumental piece of that alumni puzzle there at Capital Region and just putting that group together. But she's just been such an asset to the alums as an alum and now as part of our team. And so we're grateful to have her. And um, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So how did you end up in St. Charles? Oh, wow. Yeah. So when I got out um, about four months later after I got out of RCA, Uh, My boyfriend got a job offer out here, and I really had nothing going on back in that county that I grew up in because it was nothing but bad memories. Mm -hmm. Every road, every store, you know, was just nothing but bad memories. So I'm like, sure, I'll move out there, no problem. So we ended up moving out here, and that's And you didn't know there was an RCA here? Did not know at all. So, yeah, I mean, I had that dream of working at RCA, (laughs) working, and... um, you know, four months into it, I'm like, well, I guess that dream is dead. That's never going to happen now. Wow. Yeah. And um, I spoke to Tammy and she's like, you need to look up there. They just opened a new location in Illinois. You really need to see where that's at. And so I did. And it's 30 minutes from my house. And I'm like, what? Get out of here. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that was a sign from uh, my higher power. I truly believe that. Oh, that's so cool. Um, and, and now you've been with RCA, what, eight months, nine uh, months? Seven months now. Seven yeah, months. Seven months, yeah. And on our team for a month or so. Yeah. And we're just so pleased to have you and, and really thank you for the work that you've done at, at Capital Region and now here. Yeah. And the alums are really rallying behind and, um, I think you're just going to do great things. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's like I said, it's a blessing just to, to be able to, to work here, uh, you know, just RCA period. It, do, it doesn't matter what location like that was a, a goal of mine, but I love it out here in St. Charles. Um, the campus here is beautiful. You know, it's a little different with having all the different cottages, but it's beautiful with the lake and everything. Yeah. yeah and uh, just to, just to be able to work, you know, for the place that saved my life is really an honor and to be able to see the, the patients and to know, you know, um, I can relate to what it's like to first come in here and to be scared and, you know, not knowing what is going to happen. And, 
um, you know, and to be able to relate to that and say, hey, it's going to be all right and spread a little hope. Tell us a little bit about what brought you to RCA. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, um, a lifetime of drug use. <laughs> I can tell you that drug addiction. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, my whole life I was pretty much an alcoholic slash addict. Uh, even, when you say your whole life, yeah. do you remember when you first started? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, well, I can remember about 11. It probably was before that, but like my childhood was very traumatic. So I really don't have a whole lot of memories prior to that. So yeah. 11 was when, um, my parents had abandoned me. Um, they were in trouble with the police. So they went on the run and they just left me and my sister by ourselves and didn't say a word. So that's like where my memories pick up. And, um, that is where my journey began of drinking on purpose to cope with life. Yeah. Um, so that really started the ball. Then like my grandfather dying shortly after that, I couldn't cope with that. So I turned to alcohol and even at 11 and 12 years old, like I, my mind centered my life and mind and everything centered around the party. Um, like school, nothing mattered. Just when am I going to party? When do I have time to get out and drink? And growing up in an environment where the whole, it's a very small little town everybody there are alcoholics generation after generation are just full of alcoholics so it was not weird for a 12 year old to be partying with 18 year olds and getting drunk every weekend you know it was like just nothing weird or odd about that it was okay and i was able to do that and are you living with grandparents at this time then? yes i was living with my grandparents and of course you know i had the advantage of being there because they didn't know anything about sneaking out and different things like that. And, you know, I would just slip right out of the back door and they wouldn't be the wiser or, you know, sneak back in. Um, and they wouldn't know. So I, that's pretty much how I lived my life. I mean, even at, by the time I was 13, like my goal, my, my new year's resolution was to drink a case of beer. Like that is just where my mind was mm -hmm. constant, nothing about just all party, nothing else, but partying and how much I can drink. Um, I mean, and that just went on, you know, for the rest of my life. It never stopped. Um, I just started to transfer the drinking into drugs, something more instantaneous. Are you able to get through school? Are you functioning? Are um, teachers noticing? Or no, no, they didn't notice. And I would I'd go to school drunk. I mean, I would mm -hmm. go to school with liquor in my backpack on the school bus, drinking in the back of the school bus. But nobody seemed to notice. Um, they either didn't care or they didn't notice. I don't know which one, but no, my grades, I was always like a C student because I never applied myself. So I just kind of skated along as a C student. I was okay You're just with under that. the radar. Just under the radar. Um, and that went straight up through high school. And I mean, yeah, nobody... Nobody said anything. I was able to do that. And I mean, I was, you know, in seventh grade, like the only kid on probation because, you know, I'd gotten trouble for stealing and different things like that. Um, but again, that was something like I was cool. I prided myself on being the only person in uh, seventh grade on probation. And like, that's just, you know, I was hurting. I was hurting from, Absolutely. you know, the life of trauma and my parents doing what they did and just not knowing how to cope with life, you know. And, and grandpa passes away when you're... Yeah, when I was 12. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that bit that of security me. that they had, you had... Yeah, that was my safe place. So I really didn't 
I just that I really spiraled it when that happened. Not not just my parents, but when that because that that was my safety. And then when he died, I just was lost. Yeah, I just lived the rest of my life lost. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, at at fourteen, you know, uh, living that life centered around alcohol, and then slowly making my way into drugs. You know, at four, I wasn't making the best choices, of course. Uh, by the time I was 14, my parents had, they had come back, they did their jail time and all that. But by that time, uh, like, you're not going to tell me what to do. Yeah. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Like, it's just yeah. not, I don't, you know, who do you think you are kind of attitude, like, mm-hmm. you know, so the, they pretty much couldn't gain control of me. And, you know, by the time I was 14, I was, um, I got, I want to say maybe looking for a father figure, whatever it was, I ended up, you know, getting with what I know now is a pedophile, right? He was 28. I was 14. Um, and you know, that was somehow okay. I guess, uh, it got me out of my parents' hair. I'm not really sure. I mean, they tried to fight it for a little while, but ultimately they just let me move out with him by the time I was 15. Um, and then that's pretty much when my drug career started. Um, doing different drugs, getting into smoking crack and just stuff that was instant, like that instant. That's what I fell in love. The alcohol took 15, 20, 30 minutes, but the drug, that instant high from a drug is where I was like, no, we're going to do that now. Um, and then, you know, that, that just led into a lifetime of, uh, just transferring one drug addiction to another. Um, it's easier to say, what drug I haven't done than to go through all the different ones that I have. The only thing that I have not been addicted to is, is crystal meth, the upper. Um, and that's only because it never crossed my path. I literally never met anybody that did that. So, but if I had, um, you best believe I would have been addicted to it. Um, but you know, living my life like that again just centered on the party i had no goals no aspirations nothing just when can i party you know is it time to drink is it time to do drugs um i got pregnant at 18 i had my daughter which is probably the best thing that came out of that relationship because that was also the first relationship where i was um introduced to being abused yeah um but uh you know, having my daughter really didn't change much. I ended up doing drugs the whole time I was pregnant with her. Um, I was, I was a full blown addict. I'd crossed that line by the time I was 18 and nothing, nothing else mattered but the drugs. Um, but I was able to maintain that addiction, um, pretty much until I was 40. Like I didn't, I just, and you didn't ever go through treatment. No, just I did go through treatment and when I was like 36 but yeah so we'll say up until 36 I just was able to maintain um you know my drug use and going from jumping through different relationships of where I could use whoever I needed to use to get the drugs that I wanted um just you know total selfish behavior not thinking of anybody else not caring about anybody else um but again the party the drug semi getting away with it at a certain yeah. I mean you're living yeah you're not buying bars the consequences aren't right no I was totally functioning and I always had a nice place to live um again from using people but I always had a nice place to live uh, you know a bed to sleep in um so I think that 
you know, kept me in that false reality that I was okay because I had a, a bed and I had a car and a TV, you know, all these material things. I wasn't out on the street, you know, sleeping under, you know, wherever. But um, so that in my mind, I was okay. Yeah. You know, everything was fine in my mind because I wasn't ever looking at the harm I was causing to my daughter or to the men in the relationships I was with or my parents because I'd moved to Florida and my parents moved down there as well um, and I ended up living with them for a time being but again with my parents I was able to um, play on their guilt mm. um, because I knew they felt guilty for what they did when we were kids you know and knowing now it was because of their own drug addiction but I didn't even think about that then mm -hmm. so I played on their guilt and that you know they were built in babysitter and they did you know they gave me money so I just played that role for a really long time and um really I mean you had a lot of survival just oh, yeah. instincts that you had and skills right the yeah. coping skills that you developed Right. as a child to just maintain what you knew. Yeah, that is all that I knew was um, lying and manipulating, learning how to use people. Um, and that takes a brilliant mind. Yeah. <laughs> it really well, does. it does. It does to keep that going for as long as I did. Yeah, yeah. It, it really does. And But it's also exhausting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very exhausting to live a life like that. Um, but, um, yeah, so um, getting in, um, I just... I never understood until now, looking back in my life, you know, getting into the abusive relationships and I just had no, no self-worth, no self-esteem, um, you know, just full of guilt and shame, but, um, didn't know any other way. You know, I, I never really learned how to cope with life in a normal fashion because my parents didn't, they were both addicts. So it's like I was set up from the start to, you know, be an addict. Like, I truly believe I was born an addict, like 100 percent. Um, so um, my drug use, you know, I, like I said, transferring all of that led up to me, me getting, you know, um, the opiates, you know, and that's really where my life started to spiral. Once I got hooked on pain pills, mm -hmm. um, I had moved back to Maryland with an abuser. Um, and got hooked on, you know, pain pills, uh, Percocets and things from the doctor. And of course I get it from the doctor. So it's prescribed. It's okay. You know, um, like it's no big deal that I'm running out in two days after I get a 90, you know, 90 pills script and two days later they're gone and I'm looking on the streets to buy it. And I mean, I did that dance for a little while, but you know, that is also hard living that life of lying and trying to doctor shop and then trying to find ways and means to get more pills. Um, it became easier to turn to heroin really because it was cheaper, but, um, you know, cheaper and accessible, more accessible, right? Mm -hmm. It was, you always could go, you know, you knew where to get it and it didn't matter what time you didn't have to, you know, wait, <laughs> but, um, you know, I really think that addiction got really bad because of the abusive relationship I was in. I was in a horribly abusive relationship when I thought that the other men that I had been with were abusive. I, that was nothing compared to, you know, what I went through, um, you know, before I went to treatment the first time. But, um, you know, being financially abused, emotionally, mentally, physically, 
technologically, um, every way that you can think of. Um, and that was rough. And so being an addict and then getting caught under the thumb of an abuser. Do you care if I ask, like, yeah. oh, that's the first time I've heard somebody say I was technologically abused. Yeah. Oh, what does that mean? What do you, what do you oh, mean? yeah. So um, tapping my phone, um, reading all my messages, you know, what? so when a person's the owner of the account, yeah, yeah, you might know because you have kids, but you can, it's like a mirror image to the, uh, if you have another line on the account, you can get everything sent to your phone. So every message, every phone call was recorded and so you have sent. No privacy. No privacy, but I didn't know how long. Like that was going on for a while. So that, but yeah. So that is um, not cool when somebody's doing that to you. Mm -hmm. You know, even Google searches, like everything that you do from your phone, that person is getting everything. Just like it's like a mirror of the phone. So like, <laughs> cause you know, I would Google, like I, by this time I was, you know, using needles and trying to hide that from him. Um, was, I mean, I took a lot of abuse from, you know, lying and manipulating and stealing money and trying to live that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But, um, so that's how I got caught. And that's why I went to, to treatment the very first time was I ordered, needles like I Google searched how to get needles because I was very embarrassed to try to go into the CVS or the the uh, grocery store pharmacy I was mm -hmm. embarrassed to go in there to get a needle and it was awkward to be like yeah I need some diabetic needles I was just I was humiliated and mortified and I couldn't do it so I'm like trying to find ways online to get you know <laughs> needles and he caught me um doing that and reaching out to a dealer and I was, I was scared I was going to die. I was scared he was going to kill me because of, um, you know, the threats and the beatings from the past. I, I thought, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, he was out of town that day. So I called a treatment center and got in and I'm like, okay, I'm going to escape that. And that's what I did for 30 days. So I was never really there to get treatment. Um, I was there as an escape. So I wouldn't get my but beat, you know what I mean? Get beat up by this man. Um, so to be honest, I really couldn't tell you anything that I learned in there because I was just in there for that, you know? Um, and every day was an argument. You got a 10 minute call a day and every 10 minute, you know, every day that 10 minute was nothing but arguing and screaming and yelling. Mm -hmm. So I was so focused on that part of it. It just, yeah. Yeah. Didn't, it didn't. You were there stick. for safety. I was there for safety, right. Um, one thing that did come out of that was I got um, that seed planted of them yeah. taking us out to AA meetings. Mm -hmm. I did get that little seed planted of what AA, you know, was. Like, you have a place to go eventually, but I'm just going to forget about that and lock it in the back, you know what I mean? <laughs> but the seed was there. Um, so that's at 36. Yeah, that's at 36. So And you get out. And do you go back? Oh, I got out. Yeah, pretty much. Um, no, I did stay in sober living for 30 days. But again, I was harassed. Uh, he would uh, stalk the place and have the girls there mm -hmm. freaking out. But then as abusers do, then he would come and bring them chocolate and flowers and they'd be all lovey-dovey and kind again. But he was stalking me and harassing phone calls. So I ended up leaving and going home for the Christmas that year. And... Um, 
yeah, I overdosed probably two days later. I went straight back to using the drugs because I couldn't cope with life with him. Now, is that the first time you've overdosed? No, I did overdose prior to that, but not to where I've had to been Narcan, just waking up on the floor. So like nobody knew, you yeah. know, but yeah, I, I would call that an overdose, you know, yeah. waking up on the floor a couple hours later, you know, but not really wanting to share that or admit that to myself. You know, I just fell asleep. So I never really looked at my overdoses as a big thing. Like, yeah, I died. Like it is a big thing, but back then it didn't matter, you know? And, um, the, this time when I overdosed, luckily, um, it was somebody I was in treatment with, you know, because I got all the wrong numbers while it was in there. I got all the people I knew were going to get out and use. So I had better connections mm. that he, that my abuser didn't know about. Right. At this point, he doesn't know these people. <laughs> so, and I also got a second phone. So I had those little phones you get from Walmart. You know what I mean? You put minutes on it, just total sneaking around and still lying and you know, cheating and just acting like that. Um, but fortunately when I overdosed this time and nobody told me in that treatment center that don't use the same amount of drugs that you used when you came in or you can overdose. So I got here. Mary, I think we could speak to that. Like yeah. when people detox or when they get out of treatment, it's a very vulnerable time. They're at yeah. extreme risk for death and overdose. Absolutely. Because their system is now, flushed out yeah and so when you use at the same level as as your system was used to right yeah you yeah you will overdose yeah nobody told me that so when at that time what i was it was a pill that uh, over in baltimore they sold them in like capsule form the heroin i'm like yeah sure i'll do the same thing i'll do the same amount one whole pill well yeah that killed me um because again I didn't know. I thought, yeah, I just use whatever I've been using. My tolerance is up, not even thinking that 30 day or 28 days had gone by that that made a difference. And I didn't know that. Um, and that killed me from not, not having that knowledge. Yeah. I had to be Narcan. I think it was three times I woke up in the hot, uh, in the ambulance. And of course that ruined my high. So now I'm angry and I'm fighting with the, the, um, ambulance, people, you know, the paramedics and get to the hospital. And of course I'm not staying here because now I have to go get high because you just took my high away by giving me Narcan. Right. Um, but after that whole ordeal to not deal with the fact that, that I just died. Right. Yeah. Yeah, No, none of that. And then also to deal with all the consequences I was going to have when I got, when he found out my abuser found out that now I'm at the hospital and all that, you know what I mean? Like, I cannot deal with that. And I think that's something that can be underestimated for the helping professions or people who are trying to help all the other things you're going through and running through your mind. Yeah. It's probably not that you didn't want help. Right. You've got a lot of fear going yeah. on. You've got a lot of trauma. You're you just. It, it. Yeah, it was too much. I was overwhelmed. I didn't know any other way. Yeah. I did not know any other way. Um, at that time, I thought that there was no way out. I thought this was just the hand I was dealt. I think we have people that look on the outside. Well, why should, wouldn't you want help? Right. Why? And maybe somewhere you do, but there's just so much other there's stuff barriers, below the yeah. Yeah, barriers. Yeah. And you're swimming beneath the surface. Right. I wanted, I mean, I deep down, I wanted help, but 
everything else in me, you know, um, just block that at every turn. Again, being in an abusive relationship, it wasn't about what I wanted. It was about what he wanted at all times. The guilt and shame that I carried, the trauma that I had, you know, no self-confidence, no self-worth being told every day that I'm worthless. You know, I started to believe that and that there was no help for me, you know, just being brainwashed into thinking that there is no help. So I slowly just accepted the fact that that's what I was going to be. I was going to die an addict and there was no help. I couldn't get sober. I couldn't do it because every time I tried, I went back out. But what I didn't know then is I had a disease, you know, and that there was a solution to that, but I had to put forth the effort. You know, I had to be open and honest and willing to do things because I always thought, well, yeah, it doesn't work. But I didn't try anything. I would sit on my butt and say, AA doesn't work. NA doesn't work. Rehab doesn't work. But I never put forth any effort into any of those things to get any kind of benefit from it. So I just, you know, accepted the fact that I was going to die an addict. <laughs> um, until, you know, I, I broke away from my abuser, which was the worst year like if i thought he was going to kill me the 11 years i was with him like he was really going to kill me that year the first year that i was out away from him um and uh yeah that's that um he made my life really really bad like uh, i went into hiding and again i'm i'm still using heroin at this time because i can't cope with the situation mm -hmm. i cannot deal with this man um, I'm not even really, so my, you know, I didn't really mention my daughter, but at this point I'd let her move out of the house at, when she was 17, as long as she finished school, you know, I let her move in with her boyfriend and she did all of those things. Um, but the situation at home was too much for her to, to bear. So I let her move out and, um, she had her own place when she was, uh, 17. But, um, so by the time I left, I had to go into hiding and, um, you know, this man kept putting charges on me to bring me two hours. I was two hours away. In mm. fact, I was in where capital region is. I was in Waldorf yeah. and having to drive back to Carroll County. Uh, he would put false charges on me to get me to go up there, you know, and face him in court over and over and over. So it was a lot of, you know, phone harassment and then trying to find me through other people. And, you know, my daughter lived right by him. So she would relay all this information. So that next year was like trying to stay one step ahead of the person that's trying to find me to kill me. So I really wasn't even interested in getting off of drugs yeah. because survival. I couldn't, yeah, Just I couldn't survive survival. any other way. Yeah. It was too, too much, too scary. Um, so I'd like to say when COVID hit, you know, that's when I went back out. Cause I mean, I think everybody will say that, but I'll be honest, it wasn't COVID. It was, it was me, you know, COVID just started, but that's not, you know, that's not why I started shooting dope again. It's because I could not stand to be in my own skin, you know, and I wouldn't do anything about it. Like I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle the guilt and shame, you know, of being a sober mind. Um, it was even worse trying to do that sober. So I turned, you know, to, to the needle again, because in my mind, it was a great idea. 
Like, well, I've been sober now. I've been really sober now. Mm, COVID's going on. Like, why not go to Baltimore and cop some dope? <laughs> you know, like that, yeah. to me, that seemed like a great idea. That seemed like a really good idea. And I told myself, you'll only do it, you know, on the weekend or today. You'll just do it today or get enough for today and tomorrow. And that's it. I literally told myself that I could do, I could shoot heroin can, and control and control it. You know, another false reality, yeah. you know, my disease telling me I can do that. And then after the day or two, well, you can go ahead and do it the next two days. It'll be okay. As long as you stop by next week, you'll be all right. You won't be hooked on it yet. And that's what I told myself after the first week. And then, well, another week, it's fine. You can stop. You got off the methadone. It's fine. You know, and that that whole rat race of lies, uh, complete BS to myself. And then, you know, within that first month, I was blowing my whole paycheck you know, my phone's getting shut off. I can't get gas. Mind you, by this point. Are you living alone or are you living I'm with your sister? I'm still living with my sister, trying to hide that, right? Of course, she doesn't she... know. She knows because she's always calling me out for being high. And I'm hating her because how dare you? I'm not high. You don't know me. I am not high. You know, and I tried to avoid her. I lived with her um, for that year and probably only saw her maybe three times because I stayed in my room. I isolated. I went to work and stayed in my room and tried to avoid her so she wouldn't see it. But she got tired of it because I would go out and do dumb things like wash the dishes. And she knew I was high if I ever went out to wash the dishes. So like, that's how she would catch me. Why'd you clean your car? Like, I know you're high because all you do is sit in your room, you know, crazy stuff. But she got really tired of it. And I'm sure there was a lot more that I don't even remember. Yeah. You know, um, so, I, you know, I was in the midst of all that. I'm wrecking car. I'm wrecking my car like every week. Um, I had three accidents back to back right before I went into RCA um, within like a four month period. Just keep I keep nodding out at the wheel. And it's crazy what you'll do to like the thought of. Don't shoot dope and drive never crossed my mind. What crossed my mind is how can I drive high and not fall asleep? You know, that's how my mind worked. And I would go and I would punch myself in the thigh as hard as I could to try to stay awake as I'm taking that one hour drive back and forth from Waldorf to Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And I'm punching myself and smacking myself in the face to try not to nod out, you know, um, burn it, letting a cigarette burn down and burning myself with a cigarette and I still wrecked like that still didn't, I mean that maybe that saved me half of the time, but I was still nodding out, but that's how my mind was yeah. not don't drive high. Wait till you get home before you do this, you know, let, let, let me see what I can do to keep you awake and be high it, it, total insanity. Um, so <laughs> I totaled my car on May, um, May 18th of 2020. Uh, doing 80 miles an hour on 495 oh my goodness. and, uh, fell asleep and somebody, you know, tapped my fender and I spun out and, uh, hit the embankment. Um, but that was okay. Cause I still had drugs, you know, I still had drugs enough. And you're not getting the police aren't involved with the oh, wrecks. No, they came. So I tapped that person. They didn't get damaged. I'm the one who spun out and totaled my car. 
But earlier that day is the day that, you know, my addiction had taken hold of me again when I told myself I was going to control it and I couldn't and I couldn't get, um, I mean, just crazy. I'm driving. I had to be at work at seven. I'm driving to Baltimore at five to get there by six to get back by seven in the morning. You know, um, and I couldn't get drugs that day. And I'm like, what am I going to do? So I stop and buy alcohol on my way into work and, um, you know, drinking before work. And I did that frequently if I couldn't get drugs, you know, that early. But this day, you know, I couldn't get any and I'm angry and I'm upset and I don't want to be there. You know, um, and my mind is just I need I need this drug. My body is screaming for this drug. And uh, when he finally called me, my dealer, you know, whatever, two hours later, whatever it was, I, I, it wasn't even an option. It was, I'm leaving. That's it. I didn't say a word. I clocked out and I left without ever telling my job anything. And I went and got my drugs and I went to my daughter's house. Um, I thought it was a great idea to give her uh, work on her car a little bit as I'm high, nodding out you know, um, in front of her telling myself that, uh, I'm only hurting myself. She doesn't know anything, you know, uh, all the while she knew. Um, but I nod out with a razor blade in my hand and slice my face open. Um, this just crazy, insane things, you know? Um, and then I leave her house and that's when I totaled my car. But again, that was okay because I still had drugs call my daughter, you know, she comes to pick me up and, uh, I spend the next two days doing my drugs, you know, still not worried about what I'm going to do. I, my sister kicked me out. I, you know, quit my job and I totaled my car, but that didn't matter until the drugs ran out and then, then it mattered, you know, and I did, um, I went through the, the worst withdrawal ever that I ever have ever experienced. Um, you know, laying on my daughter's couch, watching naked and afraid. <laughs> like if they can do it, I can do this, you know, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. Um, again, my body, you know, just the way I felt my body screaming, um, knowing that 30 minutes from where she lived was, you know, uh, what would make me feel better. And, um, I had just, you know, a little bit of, um, of, of a good person deep down inside enough to recognize that I was about to steal all of my daughter's money in her car. And in fact, I, I talked to her recently and she told me that, um, in my mind, I like to say that I politely told her those things, but I, it wasn't polite. Yeah. I, I, I won't say, you know, the words that I said, but I was cussing and screaming and yelling at her for her to give me her car keys and I'm going to take her money, you know, um, because I just didn't have another option. I needed to feel well. I needed that, that drug. And, uh, right. You know, she wouldn't do it of course. And thank God that she didn't. Cause I probably would have been dead. But, um, in that, in that time, I knew that my abuser that I had escaped from lived like a mile down the street from my daughter. And I knew that he would get me whatever I wanted because he wants to be with me and he'll just do that. So again, my um, addict thinking thinks that's a great idea to go, you know, to contact my abuser that I went no contact and went into hiding and has been away from for over a year, you know, and I do that. I contact him and of course, yeah, I'll get you whatever I can get you, you know, and I, I, 
almost died that day uh, trying to walk because I was so sick. I had no food, no water. I was so ill uh, trying to walk a half a mile to meet this man to get Suboxone. Um, I just pushed my body to the limit. Like I, I really believe like something inside of me broke. And when I took that Suboxone, I felt even worse. I really thought I was going to die. And um, I was like shaking like this. And I, I got back to my daughter's house. And of course, you know, my abuser then he just started blowing my phone up. Like that was like the worst mistake I could have made. Right. But I did it because I needed the drugs to go to any length to get the drugs. It, none of that other stuff mattered. But um, I, when I got back to my daughter's house and, you know, I, as I'm laying there, and I, I feel like I'm going to die. My daughter came in and asked me, um, you know, I forgot. She said, you need help? She said, Something like that. And I, I looked at her and I'm like, yeah, she's like, I'm calling my boyfriend's mom who was in recovery. And I'm like, okay. Cause I was just, I was like, okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, without me ever having to ask for help, I'm just so grateful to my daughter that she knew I needed it. Um, you know, she really knew that I needed it and I, I couldn't ask for it. I was too embarrassed. I was too full of guilt and shame, you know, no confidence, no self-worth, no self-love. Um, I could, it was too hard to say, Carly, please help me, you know, yeah. but my actions told her, you know, that I needed help and she was going to give me that help and I accepted it. And um, that's when I ended up in uh, the hospital. I went in through the hospital for, well, they don't really detox you off of heroin, but that's how I was able to speak to someone about getting into a treatment center. And lo and behold, I was taken right back to Waldorf where I just moved out of. <laughs> um, and that's how I ended up in RCA. And, you know, I was so done. I was so tired, like they say, sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, I was scared because I'd lost everything. I had nothing, no place to go, no car, no money, no job, no nothing. Like, what am I going to do? I'm like, well, at least I got this place for 30 days. You know, at least I can sleep for 30 days. But, um, you know, we had to go into the quarantine because of COVID, the beginning of COVID. And, you know, that was bad. That was really, really bad going through that experience. Um, not only, I, well, I would have preferred to isolate anyway. So the isolation didn't bother me because I'm like, I'd rather be alone. You know, I think most people are yeah. when they come, like, just let me have a room to myself. Um, but again, the anxiety came and, uh, you know, getting sick and not sleeping and body aches and being cold, but freezing at the same time, you know, all that kicked back in. But um, just something inside of me knew, like, the only way out is through this, you know, and I started, um, talking to some of the people there on our smoke breaks and my, um, when we moved over to regular detox, you know, my roommate was really cool and I actually helped her stay. She was going to leave. And I'm like, but you don't, you're not going to learn anything about your disease. Like I knew something, right. But I'm like, you're not going to learn anything if you don't stay, you know, and she actually ended up staying the full length of stay with me. Wow. But, um, you know, I mean, I had, I had my complaints and I had my grievances and, you know, I 
spent probably the first two weeks, you know, griping, complaining about one thing or another, right? But really that was like a mask I was wearing because deep down inside, I knew I needed to be there yeah. because I, I needed the help. Um, after, uh, within the first two weeks or right after, you know, I started feeling better, mm-hmm. you know, as we all do, um, I was able to start looking at myself in the mirror and putting makeup on, you know, and maybe not wearing the pajamas, putting re- regular clothes on again. Um, and you know, I, I, I had a couple moments in there with certain staff members where I, um, I just knew I needed to be there in that moment. Like something deep inside told me I was at the right place at the right time, talking to the right people. And that's really when my whole attitude changed. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, I started praying while there was a chaplain there and she said, she said one phrase, um, you know, a lot of the guilt I've been carrying was with my parents, like holding them hostage for what they did, you know, when, when we were little, me and my sister. And she said, you only have to say you're sorry once. Mm-hmm. And that was like a light bulb going off for me because I was like, wow, because I, you know, um, with my mother, I used that, like I played on her guilt and she apologized over and over and over and over and over and over, you know, yeah. up until she died. Um, and just in that moment, for whatever reason, I thought of my mother and me, like she said she was, she only had to do that one time and you should have, you know, gotten over it, you know? So that what if, for whatever reason, that was like the message I got. Yeah. And that made sense. And I'm like, wow, like I'm supposed to be here, you know? And that's when the, everything shifted for me. I went from a completely negative person that hated life. I hated people. I hated everything about life, you know, just wanting to die to a completely positive person that was grateful, grateful to be at RCA, grateful to wake up and have another day, you know, grateful to still have my daughter. Like I just started to become very grateful and positive. Um, and that happened right in there, you know, and, um, it was, it was the best gift that my higher power could have given me was to go to that facility at that time with those people. Like it was really a godsend for me. Um, the best experience. And you got out and everything was easy. No, <laughs> no, I wish, I wish everything was easy. It was no. super easy. <laughs> well, you know, really, it, honestly, a lot of it. Yes. Yeah. A lot of it. If it's I want to It's not as honest, hard as it seems. No, as it seems. No, it just, I had to get up and do things. That was the hard part. Yeah. Making myself do the things that I needed to do. Now, like going to meetings was that big, that was easy because that made me feel good. And, you know, but, um, picking up the phone and calling people was very hard. Mm. Being overwhelmed with life was very hard, you know, navigating through. We were talking earlier about like, somebody said the best thing about being sober is you get the, all these new feelings right. and emotions. And then they said the worst thing about being sober is yes. you get to experience all these new feelings and emotions. Right. And so, yeah, you don't know what to do. You go from being completely numb to now you are, you know, are angry, sad, depressed, lonely, scared, you know, um, even happy, even being happy was like, whoa, what's going on? This yeah. is weird. 
Like, what do I do? <laughs> you know, I remember calling people like, I'm so happy. What? I, something's not right. Yeah. Like, they're like, no, it's, it's okay. It's normal. Like, yeah, but something's getting ready. Bad's getting ready to happen. Yeah. Cause just, just being happy. For that. Yeah. You're on high alert. Right. Yeah. Like something, the shoe's going to drop in a minute. Cause it was all new and it was scary. Um, and it took a little time to learn how to navigate through those emotions, but, um, having that, that's when the 805 came in, right? I had that fellowship of people and I could get on that meeting at that time and, um, share how I was feeling, you know, and service, right. You talked about how important service was right away. Yeah, absolutely. Diving right in. Um, so not only being of service to like the, the new patients that came in, that's where, when my service work started, but, um, getting out and being of service to the 805, um, you know, I started, um, the women's only chat and the women's only meetings, you know, and then I was put on the, the administration. So then I'm responsible for, um, posting things, you know, and doing, um, getting people's addresses and just different things like that. That's where my service work started, but really, um, taking phone calls from call, other people, from other people, taking phone calls from people when they were struggling. How do you tell someone, I know that's, it's really hard. I mean, I'm bad at it myself just in, in life, like to reach out to someone else and say, Hey, I'm not having a good day or just expressing yeah. feelings. How do, how do you go about, how do you go about doing it yourself? And then how do you go about teaching other people to do that? Mm. I mean, the the easiest way that I found, because everybody, almost everybody struggles with picking up the phone because we're so used to being, I got, I'm okay. I don't need anybody. I don't need to share my feelings. And don't you think it's worse? Like, cause we don't phone anyone anymore. No. Like it's texting. Yes. So that's what I was. And there's even stigma around like, right. Girls don't call me. Until you've at least texted me and, you know, the, yeah. so like there's this kind of, right. But there's nothing like, it's easier to text though. So if you, I've told people text, text yeah. me. And then once you get communicating through text, it's just a little bit easier when you say, Hey, you mind if I give you a call or why don't you give me a call? Because you've already opened that communication through text. So then picking up the phone will be just a little bit easier to actually And how talk. important is that? That is, that is so important. Person to person, the phone call, the actual, let me hear your voice. Oh, it is super important because through that, like if you tell me you're fine, I know you're not fine because I can hear it in your tone of voice. So you might not even have to say, hey, I'm struggling. I'm already going to know because I can hear it in your voice. It's easy to fib in a text, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I have a rule too, though. If anybody uses the word fine, I automatically know you're not fine. Not <laughs> at all. Right. Like, because you know what it, it stands for, but, um, so that's usually a hint. Oh yeah, I'm fine. I'm like, yeah, you're not fine. I'm going to call you. I'm going to call you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that one-on-one over the phone or on zoom, FaceTime, that's super important um, because you can be of service. You can help somebody without them ever even ha- having to say, hey, I'm struggling um, just by hearing their voice. Well, you've done an outstanding job just keeping people together. And that power of fellowship, I think, is really demonstrated. I love going to the events in Waldorf, yeah. Capital Region. 
um, just because that, that group's been together so long and it's really powerful yeah. to watch them come back. And you even drove. Yes, I did. From St. Charles <laughs> all the way hours. back. Yeah. You've done it a couple of times, haven't yeah. you, for those yeah. events? Yeah. No, I fl- did we fly in? Yeah, two events and I flew in for one, I think. You went to Something any links like for addiction and you're going to go to any links for recovery, I that's guess. Absolutely. And that's what it takes, Yeah, you know. But even like you were saying, how hard it is, it's really not. Because, you know, getting, it's easy to say, oh, that's too much to do for my recovery, to to get up and do readings, to do a meeting, to call somebody, 30 minute check-in, whatever it is. Like a meeting is only an hour. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not your whole day. It's one hour, you know? Um, But we like to think that, oh, it's too much. I can't do IOP. That's too much. You know, it's only three days a week or whatever it is, you know, three hours a day. I spent way more than that drinking and using drugs. But somebody like me is very good at, you know, creating those excuses when really it's really not that bad once you actually start doing it. You actually start enjoying the discipline, right? you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's the structure and the discipline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And it becomes something you can't live without. No, no. If I go off of my discipline and my structure now... I start to fall back into chaos and I don't like that. I like the structured routine that I have. And even if it's thrown off a little bit, I like, I have to do a reset really quick. You know, if I get up and I can't do my readings in the morning, like say I have to feed the cat first instead of that, it throws off my routine. So then I have to like reset myself. Will you share with us, I guess maybe it's a good way to wrap up or like, what are relationships like now? How did, I mean, I know that's not an easy answer or a quick answer. Take your time. But like, how did you repair that relationship with your daughter? And were mom and dad still? Well, my mother passed away in like 2007. Okay. Yeah. So no, but I mean, on as far as uh, letting go of all that yeah. hurt and pain with my mother that passed away. Uh, you did work, that work. I did that work. Working the steps helped me with that and come to terms and yeah. heal from all of that um, stuff. But my father, he's he's still in active addiction, mm-hmm. but we do have a pretty decent relationship from afar. Mm-hmm. He's very triggering, so I don't talk to him a lot, but I will talk to him. And that's important, too, yeah. to recognize. Yeah. He's a trigger. Yeah. You've done your part. Right. And, you know. Yeah, I'm here if he ever, you know, he knows I'm in recovery now. And if he ever, you know, needs help, he knows who to call. Yeah. But I keep that relationship at a distance. But um, I, I'm, I'm over. I've, mm-hmm. I've forgiven and I've healed from yeah. the past trauma. That's beautiful. But with my daughter, 100%, my daughter hated me. My daughter didn't want anything to do with me. And that was pretty much her whole life. I was embarrassing. You know, I did nothing but scream and yell at her. Uh, was never present when I was there. You know, my mind was always somewhere else. Um, and she never wanted anything to do with me. Well, once I got sober, um, it just really, all I had to do was stay sober. I really wasn't working on myself a whole lot yet. Um, cause you know, in the first three months I just had a fellowship. I didn't join AA yet in that first three months out of RCA. But anyway, my daughter, um, She started to call me a little bit more and check in on me a little bit more. And, you know, once I started to do the things I said I was going to do, you know, um, I was present when I spoke to her 
you know, she started to, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, I apologized to her. I didn't make my amends yet, but I apologized to her. I kind of explained to her what has been going on with my addiction and was really open and honest. Um, our relationship started to get better. Um, yeah, just over time. And then once I wor started working the steps, um, once I made my amends with her is really, really when the healing started. Um, you know, and I'm glad I waited because if I would have done that right out of the gate, it might not have turned out the way it did. So for me within that first year, just me staying sober one day at a time and, um, trying to do a little bit of work on myself, um, made my daughter interested to want to talk to me again. Yeah. Yeah. And then doing that work with amends, you know, really, um, got the home. I want to hear that whole story. So you're going to have to come back and sure. talk. I think that's a, a really interesting part of recovery, uh, you know, with the 12 steps is yeah. that amends process. Yeah. And I think it's, could be a little intimidating for people. Sure. So yeah. maybe sometime you would share that with us. Sure. It shouldn't be, but I will say I have the best relationship with my daughter. That's awesome. Um, today it's a relationship that I used to cry about wanting. Mm. Um, you know, where she calls me every day, she'll text me every day. Hey, have a good day. Just to say, have a good day. And at night, love you, mom. Mm -hmm. And that I used to cry. Like, why doesn't my daughter love me? Why doesn't she want to hug me? And now she comes to visit all the time. She just calls me all the time. Just, I love it. It's the best relationship I've ever had with my daughter now. And I, that's all because of, uh, recovery because I'm in recovery and working awesome. really hard on myself. So. We always end with favorite recovery quote. Do you have one? I sure do. I have two, actually. Okay, you can share them both. Yep, my favorite is let go and let God. Oh, that's good. And just do it. Just do it. Nike, yes. Nike. all the way. It is. It's just do it. Whenever I don't feel like doing anything, I will say just do it. Yeah. Just get up and do it. But and let go and let God, I finally understand what that means today. That is my all-time favorite. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on Strength and Recovery Podcast. If you or someone you know needs help, please feel free to reach out to us. You can call us at 1-833-RCA-ALUM, A-L-U-M, or just go on our website, rcaalumni.com. There's plenty of resources there, sober events, networks that you can join, meetings, um, a, a really great place to find that community. And we're so grateful that Amber was with us today and we appreciate you very much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Strength and Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tap the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from our listeners and hope to reach more of you out there as we continue to share these incredible stories of recovery. The RCA alumni team aims to provide a safe, supportive environment for those in the recovery community, regardless of their affiliation with RCA. We host a full calendar of virtual and in-person meetings seven days a week, 365 days a year, as well as free sober events every month. To learn more about what we do, find us at rcaalumni.com. Remember, if you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, 
pick up the phone and dial 1-833-RCA-ALUM. Help is available 24-7. Listen to another episode now or join us next time for the Strength and Recovery podcast.